0: Okay, welcome everybody another episode of junior resource investing as always before we get going please note all standard disclaimers apply blue sky discussions forward looking statements Uh, this is going to be a conversation with a lot of moving parts here so i I just want to make sure that we're all aware of those things as always martin tern of president and ceo of fpx nickel is joining me today though uh, they have a PFS on their Baptiste project in the and Nickel District in Central British Columbia. Uh, some big news out today. I, I had the thought and I kind of, I kind of let Martin know that this is a, going to be maybe, maybe my my MO for this or this talk. But FPX is already a fairly well-known company at this point, and so I thought there was value in maybe not spending too much time going through sort of those more rote discussions that slide decks can answer for people, and maybe just kind of get into more of a tailored conversation for investors, you know, by investors that we were talking that I was kind of fishing for some questions from ceo.ca and your, your followers were quite happy to oblige me. So no, I, I guess, like yeah, Martin, thank you for joining me. And, and I think maybe, why don't we just get started by, having said that, why don't you give us just, again, just for kind of the contextualizing framing part of this conversation, take two or three minutes and, and pitch us FPX. He'll help us kind of fill in the blanks on what your company is.
1: Yeah, happy to do that. And thanks for having us on, Matt. So yeah, I'm Martin Turen, President and CEO of FPX Nickel. Uh, we're based in Vancouver. Uh, just quickly on myself, I've been with the company for over 11 years now, the last eight of which as the CEO of the company. Uh, over that time, we've moved the project, our, our main Baptiste project, which is really the focus of the company from uh, from exploration through a PEA and more recently through the delivery of a PFS or preliminary feasibility study in September of 2023. Um Uh, the project at a high level is one of the world's largest undeveloped nickel deposits. And the PFS really crystallizes that it has a very simple, robust flow sheet to produce a very high value product with uh, low cost within the bottom quartile of the cost curve uh, with a low associated carbon footprint. And the unique ability to produce a product that doesn't need to go through smelting and therefore, allows us to access end markets more quickly in the stainless steel and the EV battery supply chains. And by cutting out that smelting step, we can get paid a lot more for the nickel in our concentrate versus other peers developing nickel sulfide concentrate projects. Um, we've recently, taken on you know uh, uh, strategic investment over the last year and a half from three different um, large, well-known groups, um, and most recently from Supatomo Metal Mining, which is one of the largest nickel producers in the world. So the, the company is well positioned with a strong asset, right place, right jurisdiction, and now with the right strategic backing as well.
0: Yeah, excellent. Uh, and I immediately, already want to go off script and 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 want you to discuss philosophically uh, two tiered pricing and, and and carbon and pricing carbon. I think I will all with I'll withhold from that because I think it makes sense for us to because this is spurred by some big news today, as you say, a new partnership announced. Sumitomo, do you mind just can you just introduce that news a bit more for us to, again to help? I'm going to be discussing your your part your various partnerships here next, and just to help us kind of frame the conversation, do you want to introduce introduce us to the news you had out today?
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, earlier today we announced an investment, uh, an equity investment from Sumitomo Metal Mining. They, they will, on closing of the financing, own 9.9% of FPX. Uh, that financing is being priced at 48 cents a share. That's at a time when our volume weighted average price was uh, about 28 cents a share over the last 20 trading days. So the, the offering price represents a very significant 72% premium to our uh, share price prior to the announcement. Uh, that's just very uncommon to see that as a market participant, I'm sure you can recognize that this, this, uh, sort of thing, you know, financings at this significant premium just do not occur in this space very often, particularly in these relatively challenging markets. Now, who is Sumitomo? They're Japan's largest mining and metal processing company, about a $10 billion company, very long experience. They've literally been around for hundreds of years um uh mining and processing and refining metal products for jet ja- for the japanese economy uh very well regarded mine operators and also processors and and uh and uh, marketers of nickel products in particular both in the stainless and the ev battery markets they're well known as sort of a partner of choice for some of the tier one mining companies out there like freeport macmoran and tech so they're an ideal minority interest partner um, in a project as well, particularly as projects move towards the project finance and construction and operation phase. Really their entire MO is to go out and secure raw materials, um, sell those into the Japanese economy for Japanese industrial use. Um, and it's part of really an integrated strategy within the Japanese economy to secure raw materials. and. You know their investment here is is um, is is novel for them in in this cycle. They haven't invested in other nickel companies or nickel projects. Um, so the fact that they've chosen us here to put their money in is a real vote of confidence for the management and for the viability of the project, both from a technical standpoint and economic standpoint, and also with, also with respect to the permitability of the project ultimately as well.
0: I'm going to kind of go more kind of 30,000-foot scale here, but I can't help but kind of drill down into the, the specifics, and I, I find it so interesting. I think it's so symptomatic of, of the unhealthy market, particularly for developer companies such as your own, Devco's, where, you know, I mean, $14.4 14, $14. million for 9.9% of the company. That seems like a pretty clear flag to be planted in the ground for evaluation. Strikes me in a healthier environment. You might see a, a re-rate to that, to something approximating that value Instead, it's just—it seems just a frustrating, kind of stuck in the mud sort of situation. Um, but unless you want to touch on that, and you feel free to respond. But the question I have—I wanted to maybe just discuss Sumitomo a little bit. And how long was this deal in the works? I guess you know, if, now that it's done, maybe you can lift the veil a bit and, and kind of just how, how long were you in discussions with these guys? How many how many iterations of conversations were there? Can you kind of provide some color on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so we've known. I've known various um, individuals and met with individuals within SMM or sumatoma metal mining for many years now, going back many, many years, but this most recent, this this investment and this recent volley of activity really started around uh, September of last year. They approached us, um, they had identified ours as a project of interest, Um, that kicked off a due diligence process that, that kind of culminated in the investment today. Um, I think it's fair to say that that um uh, many different Japanese players are um let's say more motivated now than they would have been even twelve months ago to uh, go out and secure raw materials for uh Japanese industry specifically through the e v uh lens and so it's become apparent to us in our discussions with multiple Japanese players that there's been a real tone change um you know. Five six years ago, and when, when I was first getting to know some people within SMM, there, it was not a bullish view on nickel. There was not a bullish view on outbound investment. Um, you know, commodity prices were low, and we were just at a point in the cycle when um, companies like that were all almost, in most cases, looking to divest assets and not actually looking to add new investments into the portfolio. That that has very much changed. We're, we're and we're not the only nickel company that has seen that recently. And it's good to see that we're entering a part of the cycle now where you've seen these toehold investments. And to me, ultimately these toehold investments are the ultimate indicator and precursor to, to M&A, uh in the space as well. That's just the way that these things, these cycles typically kick off. And so I think people should absolutely be taking note of that as a theme generally. And, and obviously that's important for FPX specifically too.
0: I think that's interesting. I think that, you know, Retail can't help, and of course everybody does. The spot price can't help but focus on spot price these days. Of course, it's it's kind of it's it's quite low, right? And, and uh, on, on the flip side of that, you get these strategics, these multinationals, these very large organizations who are much more forward-thinking, making very large waves in the space. As you say, there's been a, quite a, few, a couple of deals recently, right? Uh, just kind of pursuing that previous line of questioning. I mean, how much neg- How much back and forth was there? Was this a pretty easy uh, de- debate, discussion, or, or negotiation where it was largely kind of agreed upon? Early on, or was there a little bit of back and forth going on, and negotiation, and a little bit of hardball here and there? Or how how that kind of transpire?
1: You know, the, like any the nego- discussion or negotiation around a transaction like this, there's always going to be back and forth, right? Um, you know, no, uh, both sides start off wanting the moon, and um, you know the art the art of the art of business is the art of compromise. That that's absolutely the case here. I know I'm being a bit generic in my comments. Uh, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds on how it all came together. I would say that we did see uh, interest from other groups in parallel, uh, which helped us to ensure that we were driving uh, a strong sort of outcome for, for our shareholders and for the future of the company. Uh, and SMM was far from the only group interested in uh, you know making an investment here, which is which is obviously helpful from our from our standpoint.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe just another transition here, and maybe allows you to speak more freely, speaking about your own perspective versus and trying to you know, intimate someone else's perspective. But uh, to me, the devil is in the details for these sort of deals, right? And that you know, one one-off take agreement, not all, not all, not all agreements are the same, right? And that, that I'm, I am consistently impressed. You know, I kind of scanned through in preparation for this interview. You know, you've you got these three or four deals over the past six or 12 months, and I'm impressed by the sort of clauses that you managed to in- input into these that kind of materially strengthen the position of FPX, right? I'm talking about uh, yearly limits on offtake agreements versus life of mine sort of things that you have with uh 2 right? Uh, can you... Maybe this is kind of a philosophical question, I guess. Right? I mean, when you enter these negotiations, I mean, what what are your priorities? What do you have in the front of your mind, or what do you keep in the front of your mind, or what is the approach that you bring that manages to affect these sort of positive outcomes pretty consistently for
1: FPX? Well, first of all, you know, um, it's just the truth that our asset is is a fantastic asset. Simple as that. Um, that's what helps us to set the tone that that allows us to get strong deals done on behalf of the company and on behalf of shareholders. That That's really where it begins. Uh, the stronger the asset you have, the better the deal that you can negotiate. Um, if I just step back for a second here, you know, what's been interesting to me in this sector and the battery metal space over the last few years is you're seeing clearly that the pool of, of investors and partners has, has broadened ex, uh, quite a bit for companies like ours. Going back three, four, five years ago, the only real strategic partners for a project like this would have been, you know, a major mining company. Now it's major mining companies, but it's also stainless steel companies and it's battery companies and it's chemical companies and it's the excuse me, it's the automakers themselves. And so understanding that there is a much broader pool of potential sources of capital obviously then puts us in an even better position from a negotiation standpoint. Now we have seen other companies in nickel and in things like lithium in recent months and in years gone by do deals where they are dealing with downstream offtaker types and they're giving away offtake to their project on a life of mine basis or the giving away offtake uh, on a life of mine basis and they're selling their 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 forward selling that that product at a discount to market i mean some of the deals that have been done have been absolutely outrageous uh, and and really really bad in terms of the interests of the junior mining company in question, um, and oftentimes uh, those deals have been done without any injection of capital up front by that off taker. So we always say that offtake is like the firstborn child of a mining project. Now that not that cannot be given away easily. Um, that's the mentality that we take in all these negotiations. We make that point very clear to those counterparties, and. Um, you know, by and large, they recognize that and, and I think the, the terms we're able to extract from them in these, in these agreements um, testifies, again, one, to asset quality and just to the, to the unique position we have um, in having a wide pool of potentially of, of, of interested groups and being able to uh, drive the best possible deal as a result of that.
0: And I'm going to bounce a bit here. I want to talk about Jogmech and a couple of, and try to get some updates from other partnerships there. But I think there's, I have a question here just around you know transitioning into more of an m a sort of conversation here right and, and so how do you balance bringing strategics in and, and selling ownership positions and offtakes which obviously serve to legitimize and, and progress your project in a meaningful and material way but you know but you still leave that enough meat on the bone so to speak to entice a buyer which, or to find that buyer who might not want to be encumbered by the, those hangers-ons right is there what's what's the sweet spot how do you balance these kind of two divergent pressures
1: yeah, it, it is a balancing act for sure for any company because that offtake interest is something that can provide capital, uh, but it does come with a cost in that you are sort of selling off your firstborn to some extent. Now, in the case of both the auto and the Sumitomo investment, um, we haven't actually negotiated offtake as such, but we've simply granted rights to those two groups to negotiate offtake with us or with the project operator at a later date, whoever that operator may be. Um, And, and, you know, the the implication there is that those negotiations will happen completely on market terms. There will be no discussion of pricing discounts or anything else like that. And in addition to that, between the two of those groups, we've given rights to approximately 120,000 tons of nickel um, over the the life of mine. you know that's versus that that represents collectively about seven percent of the life of mine production that leaves 93 percent or so of the life of mine nickel production unspoken for and that's going to that's going to give us or any ultimate project operator a huge degree of flexibility to use that in whatever way they see fit whether to commit it as part of let's say putting together the capital stack for project finance or not committing it at all and um so it's about getting that kind of validation from an off taker, getting that injection of capital, but not giving them so much that you're um, giving away that firstborn.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think maybe just for the for the you know, for the for the sake of historical record here. I mean, I'm looking at, su- 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 oh man, where is it having this spelled here? Sumatomo. Sumitomo. <laughs> sumitomo. Uh, so you have. Two-year standstill, maximum fifteen percent, right? That they'd have to buy in the market, or I guess another private place, presumably, right? So there's, they they cannot move further than that. So again, sort of a a strengthening bit for you. They have to vote in accordance with uh, with management recommendations for shareholder shareholder votes, right? I uh, mean, I'm looking at now Odokampu, same thing, right? That they only an eight-year uh, offtake, similar sort of uh, similar sort of restrictions there, right? That if they want to maintain or preserve the right to that offtake, they have to hold their shares, right? So again, I mean, I'm I'm saying this just again for the sake of the listeners, these very strengthening sort of clauses that you don't necessarily see this in every offtake agreement, which I think is noteworthy and and kind of worthy of applause on your part and on FPX's part for managing those things. Um, And again, feel free to to respond to that in any way if you feel free, but I, I will just jump here to Jokmack then, right? So Japanese state agency dedicated to mineral exploration, You've signed last April to your program uh, to, to just look for a, a, wear white, a wear white around the world. Um, can you just uh, you know, updates where you can and when you can with this process? I mean, can you explain the steps that have been taken already? Can you provide any color on this update at all? Where are you looking? Where have you looked? That sort of thing, right? Can you provide any, any details on this one?
1: Yeah, so first of all, you know, FPX is focused on its flagship project at Baptiste on the on a unique style of nickel mineralization. It's not a nickel sulfide or a nickel laterite. The nickel is hosted in a nickel iron mineral called Um There are occurrences of Aweroite in dozens of countries around the world, but Baptiste represents the first sort of large-scale economic concentration of, uh, of Aweroite. So Jogmec's interest here is in finding new sources of nickel specifically for the Japanese auto industry. And so what they do is they work with Western companies to go out to fund exploration and ultimately to joint venture projects that are uncovered via those exploration activities for ultimately, ultimately to sell them to uh, Japanese trading houses or mining companies as the case may be. So um, they are, as you mentioned, funding 100% of this program over the next, you know, now year and a half or so. Or 15 months or so, and um, we will have a news release in coming weeks here on the results of that uh, of that work. Um, uh, We uh, have a very strong team leading that, including uh, our VP of Generative Exploration, a guy named Keith Patterson, who was formerly head of uh, Generative Exploration with um, Eldorado Gold. has a lot of work has a lot of experience working a lot of jurisdictions around the world. Um, this work really leverages off of previous exploration we had done around the world for other aware of white deposits, you know over ten years ago now. So we we have a bit of a running start into this, definitely a first mover advantage to try to find other deposits of this type. And you know, again, the, the working with Jogmac and the Japanese government generally has been a huge uh, huge benefit to us, and it's helped, frankly to open some of the doors that have led to some of the other, strategic engagement we've had and whether it's Sumitomo or whether it's um, uh, the Toyota Panasonic uh, battery company that we also have made an agreement with recently. Mm
0: -hmm. And and so same same kind of conceptual idea of partnerships, but obviously a slightly different take on this. Canadian-U.S. federal funding applications, is there any timeline or any sort of update you can provide in terms of when we might expect updates on those?
1: Yeah, on the U.S. side, uh, you know, we have been in pursuit of some funding that's available under the U.S. Department of Defense for feasibility stage critical minerals projects. Um, to date, we have only seen a award of funding to, uh, to U.S.-based mineral development projects. They have not yet funded or provided a funding award to anything in Canada or Australia, even though they have said that they are willing to consider those. So you know we'll see how the US DoD kind of pursues that or not, and whether Canada will truly be included. We think we'd be in a good position to get funding if that were the case. From a Canadian standpoint, we've we've received some federal funding under the Critical Mineral Strategy last year, uh, particularly in order to allow us to scale up and to demonstrate our uh, larger scale production of battery grade nickel sulfate, and that work is uh, ongoing. We'll have results on that in the market here in the near term. Um, also, more recently, National Resources Canada announced the um, Critical Minerals Infrastructure Fund, or CMIF. Uh, there are opportunities here for us to pursue funding there on key pieces of infrastructure, being the road and the power line. And uh, we feel, you know, uh, like we're a known entity, certainly within the federal government of Canada. We feel we're going to put together some strong applications, and that may lead to additional, uh, you know, non-dilutive funding, which would be great for us and, and for the project and for the surrounding communities as well.
0: Mm. And so just a quick follow-up, I believe you referenced the pilot program there that, that you've received some grant funding from. Do you, Just to clarify, uh, when, when might we expect to, to hear about that?
1: Yeah, we'll probably be news in two different slices there, and that first slice would probably be sometime in the month of March, so within the next couple of months, I would say.
0: Okay. And so... I'm going to switch gears now to, to a fresh topic here and this, in, in regards to First Nations concerns and then these sovereignty discussions, right? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I, I fully appreciate that these are sensitive conversations and I don't expect you to provide material information or speak for organizations that are broad, beyond your purview, right? So, but I, at the same time, obviously, uh, from an investor's perspective, these are things are are very relevant and going concerns, right? So, there's four First Nations, Tlaasden, Benji, Wutan, Kuchi, and Takla. Um so maybe starting more generically or generally, when you are having these ongoing negotiations and conversations, what does that process look like from the First Nations perspective? Is there a certain degree of a unified front? Is this all collectively versus individually? How much are the conversations all for or one all four on or one-on-one? And then maybe more to the point and more of a meaningful question is, is there sort of a leader of these four nations or do they all carry a certain amount of weight? And, and, and that, and, and I guess more in that sort of regard of questioning, right? In terms of how do they negotiate amongst themselves too, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, these are all, you know, good questions, interesting questions. Uh, in terms of the nations themselves, each nation is a distinct entity unto itself. It has its own form of government, its own form of, of governance, its own, traditions and its own uh, constituent family units. And so the views of one nation cannot be ascribed to another. Uh, each nation speaks for itself as an independent nation. Uh, and they're recognized as such by the provincial government, the federal government. Now, that's why they form distinct nations um, as opposed to all being part of one larger group. Now, They, they do have alliances among nations on, and they, many files that they have crossover on. Whether it's within natural resources or health or police or other other considerations that are relevant to any government type organization, um, um, you know, it's not our place, frankly, to rank the priority order of nations that are impacted on our, on our project. We are not, um, uh, you know, uh, in a position to make any comments on the strength of claim of one nation versus another. We we. For nations who identify themselves as being impacted by the project, where the provincial government acknowledges that to us as well, we, we are very happy to collaborate and work with each of those nations. Um, those nations, as I mentioned, can have varying governance structures. Some are mentioned, are managed or governed by an elected chief and council. Others have a combination of chief and council, as well as hereditary uh, leadership within family units. Um, there, there is a, a mix of governance structures there. Uh, at the end of the day, we talk to as many people as possible, um, and but at the same time, while respecting those governance structures within each of those communities.
0: Well, sure. I mean, why why don't we uh, let's let's talk about that aspect then, right? I mean, so why don't you provide a bit more detail then? What what are your current engagements? What are the efforts that you have ongoing? Uh, and maybe if I was to try to make it less generic of a conversation, what are you trying to change, or what are you trying to redouble your efforts on? uh in in light of the the, the recent developments with the last
1: yeah so again as you mentioned there are four nations who are impacted here we have traditionally had agreements in place with two of those nations one being Claston the other being Binche uh, Wuten. um and uh with respect to Taklin Yukuchi you know we we have ongoing dialogue with them but we do not have agreements in place with those groups as well uh, at this time um We've enjoyed a long history of positive relationship with both Clovis and Binche. Um With respect to uh, Klausen, uh we became aware through the summer of 2023 that Chief and Council um, uh, sent a letter to its band members and and stating their opposition to the project on behalf of of, of the the nation. Chief and Council um, took that took that view or took that position. AND EXPRESSED IT TO US AS WELL. WE PROVIDED DISCLOSURES TO THE MARKET AT THAT TIME uh, DISCUSSING THAT AND DISCUSSING OUR GENERAL APPROACH TO ENGAGEMENT. Um, WE KNOW THAT uh, LARGE uh, NATURAL RESOURCE OR or RESOURCE PROJECTS ARE NEVER GOING TO ENJOY UNIFORM SUPPORT um, NOR ARE THEY GOING TO ENJOY UNIFORM OPPOSITION AT ANY POINT IN TIME AND THOSE THINGS CAN SHIFT AND CHANGE OVER TIME. Uh, WE'RE MOST FOCUSED ON you know, building up the data set, the the facts around what the environmental um, considerations are, what the the baseline of the environment looks like, what the traditional use of these lands looks like, um, what the cultural, the key cultural values and sensitivities of of this territory is. Uh, And so to that effect, we've been, you know, undertaking uh, cultural and environmental baseline studies for the last two years that work is actually being done on our behalf by a local indigenous owned business that is collecting all that information. That information, once it's all been gathered, will then form the basis for us to contemplate getting into the environmental assessment process. And it's really during that environmental impact assessment process that all of the rights holders as well as the proponent being FPX, um, really have the opportunity to comment to, to work through what we hope to be a really collaborative approach to project development. Uh, and we will be inviting all nations impacted by the project into that collaborative work environment to ensure the project is developed in a way that uh, respects their the rights and title and and respects their views on, on, on how they would like to see the project developed, if at all. Um, uh, there's no guarantee that our project or any other mining project will receive the free, prior, and informed consent of local indigenous groups. Uh, all we can do as a company is is to continue to do what we've always done, which is to engage early, engage often, engage in a respectful fashion, um, and ensure that we really, you know, walk the walk of of that sort of partnership approach to project development. This is not, you know. Uh, mining from 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. This is a truly modern approach where all rights holders are there at the table alongside the company. Every rights holder is invited to to that. We we eagerly want everyone's participation. We recognize that some will want to participate at all times. Some may come in and, in and out of that process. We'll we'll continue down that path, and and you know we're we're confident that at the end of the day, um, as as the, the As the the data is gathered and as robust and transparent conversations are had around the project, we can get the feedback that that we're looking for. We can get the engagement we're looking for and really develop this in a a joint uh, partnership model with all of these nations.
0: It's interesting. There's a couple of points that, uh, that I would... Be interested in kind of chasing chasing rabbits with you on I mean, I think that you you, you spoke well there. Uh, that, that there is baggage with the mining industry, and in, in, especially in these communities, right? And, and I think that the, the approach that maybe. In previous generations or previous iterations of this industry, where it was a rubber stamp, and then you 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 had your consultations, and then you were done, and you put it in the back burner, or you put it in the closet, and walked away. And in reality, it's an iterative process. It's a cyclical thing. It's an evergreen process of 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 maintaining stakeholder communications, relations, right? And so maybe uh, to serve as a, as a dovetail here. So uh, my understanding is that so the two the two nations that you do not have agreements signed with TACLA does have uh, active mining on its land if i yeah, you know, and correct me if i'm wrong does the Yakuch do, do the yakut have, have active mining on their on their on their territory as well
1: uh i'm not an expert on exactly which other mining projects may be within yukuchi traditional territory so i, I it would be tough for me to contact, comment on that takla you are correct they have a, a lot of experience with uh you know mining operations and, and mineral exploration development projects within their territory
0: okay and uh, so uh, just a couple more questions on this topic here, and maybe I'll, I'll just ask in terms of, I mean, obviously, Indian Act is a federal concern, but of course, the BC with unceded territories is, is its own issues as well. But I mean, what role, how active are the provincial and or federal governments in these discussions with 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 the with the Tlaasden in particular, I suppose?
1: Yeah, hard for us to comment on that specifically. I I know that um, both the provincial government of B.C. as part of its critical mineral strategy, which uh, uh, I've been on the committee, on an advisory committee, helping the province to develop that strategy, as well as the federal government of Canada in its critical mineral strategy. Both, you know, one of the common themes between the provincial and the federal strategy is certainly working towards sort of Economic reconciliation and full indigenous participation in these projects, uh, both from an economic standpoint, but also through, um, you know, their participation in the environmental assessment and permitting processes. Um, And as part of that, um, I really do believe that the governments, and we're we're seeing that here, are willing to roll up the sleeves and get directly involved uh, in 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 in, uh, ensuring these projects can advance. Uh, in a way where all the the rights holders, uh, rights and title holders, are at the table alongside the proponent, um, and I think I do think that's appropriate. I do think that you know these nations face a lot of different issues. Uh, they, as governments themselves, they have a lot of touch points with the federal government and with the provincial government on a number of different files, whether it's around healthcare, whether it's around policing, whether it's around uh, other natural resources or economic matters, uh, education, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on. And so, um, uh, there's a real role I think for both the provincial and federal governments to play in being active participants in these um, in these resource development projects to to ensure that um, nations feel as if you know their their participation in these projects or their their engagement in these projects also allows them to be heard with respect to other issues that they may have that they want to prioritize in their in their dialogue with government if the government does not get get involved then it then there's a potential for a lack of trust i think between these nations and the ultimate regulators and so i I do applaud any government efforts by the province and and by the federal government to really roll up their sleeves and get involved in these projects that does not mean that they are signaling that they're going to approve the projects It simply, uh, you know, acknowledges the reality that these are complicated relationships, government to government relationships between these nations and between both levels of government and, um, and that it's just the right respectful thing to do. Um, and it certainly uh, provides some assistance to proponents for, for government to roll up their sleeves and, and get directly involved. We've seen that, uh, be the case in the ring of fire in Ontario. Uh, where there's been sort of a uh, project table formed, funded by the federal government that ensures that all rights holders are there at the table in a working group to discuss the development of that project. And I personally think that's a great model for other important uh, resource projects in Canada, and I, I certainly think we should, we should be viewed as one of those
0: thank you uh, interesting uh, very very uh curse of living an interesting times, i suppose as the saying goes right uh so uh, another question here just uh, on this concept of these unsigned or, or unfinished agreements and it's it's two parts and can you versus will you and i think you kind of touched on this right that that sometimes that if you talk about that, that good faith exercise and actually building relations it's not strong arming your way right. through in, into a decision that you want but can you versus will you move forward to a construction decision excuse me, without uh, agreement signed with the Tackle and the Yukuchi.
1: Oh, that's, that's really not for us to decide. Um, it's, it's, for, it's, it's a mutual decision between ourselves and those nations to see if they even want to have agreements with us as a company. So um, we're seeking agreements with those groups. Um, we're interested in having agreements with all of the impacted nations here. To provide a framework for how we can best collaborate um, but that that's not a decision that we make on our own as a company
0: sure no thank you that, that fair answer last one here and this is one where i I'm not even going to ask any leading question I just want to there, I will just ask for you to provide any sort of details you can on this but uh, so the, the Tlazdan there was a recent sort of uh release from from that nation a petition had been handed to the chief of council sounds like they might be potentially accelerating their election from 2025 to this coming June uh, and again like uh, no, no leading question is there anything just uh, details or input or, or things that you know that that maybe the, the market might benefit from knowing as well based on that or any, any information there?
1: Yeah, it's is not appropriate for us for us to comment on the internal governance dynamics at, at any nation. Just yeah, just just uh, can't provide any color there and uh that that's really all we would have to say on that.
0: No, that's reasonable. That's I just can't uh, can't help but ask, right? So, um let's switch gears then. So, BC Critical Mineral Strategy, right? Do you mind again you you touched on it right you're on the board, can you just give a brief brief overview of what it is as well as FPX's involvement in it?
1: Yeah, um, you know, the, the strategy hasn't been published yet. It's still being worked on. Uh, I think the plan is to publish it at some point in the first half of this year. Exact timing is not known. I myself don't know the exact timing of its publication. The advisory committee that uh, FPX was invited to participate in, where I was the representative, uh, involved, you know, members of industry. So it was us and uh, tech resources as, as members of industry, uh, union uh, or labor representation, uh, represent uh, multiple different representatives representing various First Nations groups um, and industry associations as well. Um, so it's good and wide-ranging group. We had a lot of really productive dialogue around the table over several different sessions over the fall. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for BC um, to pursue in in the critical mineral space, as there is for for many provinces across the country. Um, you know, for BC, you know, there's perhaps fewer downstream opportunities than you might see in Quebec and Ontario where you have, you know, the proximity or the the sort of the, the history of automotive, uh, of auto production. That's not the case here in BC. I think where the real opportunities are in BC is on the upstream side on development of the next generation of large scale nickel projects, uh, copper projects, et cetera. Um, yeah, it can't really be more specific yet about what is exactly going to end up in that final strategy. Uh, it's, it's not yet been um, finalized, and but um, I think it's going to set a nice framework for exactly kind of what parts of that critical mineral supply chain can BC really leverage its participation in. And, and there's some decision making to be made there. Um, but, you know, a key theme of that is is really using um, this opportunity, this sort of almost once in a century opportunity around critical minerals, supply chain development to not just, you know, create jobs, bolster the economy, but also use it as a, as a meaningful vehicle uh, to advance economic reconciliation with first nations. And it's really one of those rare instances when you can, when you have, you know, an economic opportunity that both is going to be positive for the economy, um, can be positive for communities. And can be a net positive driver from from an environmental standpoint I, I can't think of any other industry that offers those opportunities and so it'll be great to see that i think strategy published and it'd be great to see you know significant investment by the provincial governor of bc to, to make it all a reality
0: so i just have a couple of questions left here and, and i'm going to try to rephrase this because you're right, I mean, unfinished content is not. I'm not, I'm not, I can't expect you to kind of give us a draft and we can, you know, disseminate on the internet. Obviously, it's not the expectation here, but could I just, you know, ask you, Martin Turin, as the individual and, you know, sidestepping the, not asking you to put on your hat as a member of this panel or this board, but what changes? What positive changes or what 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 growths would you like to see yourself, personally speaking, in terms of our approach to the way that we manage our mineral? So if I can just ask you on on a, on a philosophical theoretical level, you know, moving forward, you know, Martin Turan, and your, your, your president for president of the you know, of the world for a day, right? What are what are some changes that you would like to see implemented?
1: Yeah, I think it does go back to that point I made earlier about government really rolling up its sleeve and playing an active role in facilitating. Uh, and deepening engagement between industry and and nations. Um, I think there's been an approach in the past where government can kind of be a little bit sort of standoffish or sort of wash their hands of the situation and say, you know, no, it's up to industry to go out and uh, effect economic reconciliation with with indigenous groups. Um, And I think that really, in so doing, the government really can abdicate its responsibility You know the um, the root cause of the need for reconciliation is historical injustices that the government of Canada, the government of BC, or really writ large, the people of Canada um, have 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 um, you know the injustices that for which we're all bear some responsibility, uh, from which uh, First Nations people in this country have suffered. Um, To expect that uh, any single company uh, whether it's a mining company, a pipeline company, a forestry company, or any other company can go into a community and effect reconciliation on its own without the full participation of the government in acknowledging those wrongs and working meaningfully to try to redress them is, is, um, is, uh, is, is I think, naive. Um, and it doesn't really meet, the, I think, these nations where they are which is where they want comprehensive solutions to, um, uh, to, 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 to seeing a, a, a better outcomes for their people. And that doesn't mean just a mining project in isolation or a pipeline project in isolation. It means a comprehensive approach to reconciliation. Uh, no, no single company can affect that on its own, but it can be part of a larger solution, working hand-in-hand with government to, um, to, to uh, approach these nations in a respectful manner to say, how can we potentially make you know, economic development in your, in your territory uh, meaningful to you, beneficial to you, and how can, can we use a, a project like the one that FPX is advancing to unlock a whole host of benefits, whether it's employment benefits, economic development benefits, um, to say nothing of the opportunities to use the, a project like ours to improve critical habitats, to work to preserve cultural, cultural and, and, and heritage uh, sites and, and activities and practices within these communities. Um, but that has to be sort of a 360 approach, and it can't just be industry doing it all on its own.
0: I can't help but ask as a follow-up. You've been CEO of FPX for eight years now. Have you seen growth? I mean, are, are there positive strides being made in terms of that nation-to-nation relationship? In terms of the, when you're on the ground up there, speaking to to these people in these nations, have you seen a growth in trust or, or in a willingness for them to to come to the table and speak with you? Or, or what's what's the how has the relationship evolved?
1: Yeah, the, these 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 relationships—they evolve over time. You're sometimes in periods when it's incredibly positive, um, and you're seeing the benefits of job opportunities being created for young people, or a real collaborative approach to how to design something as simple as a drill program, um, and and having First Nations employees. I mean, we've had you know in our more, more recent campaigns like well in excess of 50% of the workforce has been from the local communities that, that, that that's great to see. We've had, you know, great involvement from First Nations, you know, monitors and people who are making sure we're doing the right thing, and keeping us to our promises uh, and, and keeping us to our agreed uh, uh, work programs and practices of how we conduct work. At the same time, there's also periods when it's a bit more difficult. Um, you know, the uh, uh, no relationship. Uh, if you're if if you have a partner at home, if you've got a partner or kids or parents or family members or friends, no relationship is ever always always sunshine and and, and roses. Sometimes you go through some difficult times, um, and 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 that's just that's just life. It's just about how you conduct yourself in those most more difficult periods. And our approach as a company is just to kind of maintain a steady, consistent path. We're, we, we, we've, I think we've always done that. We'll always continue to do that. And, um, um you know, I think that that's going to be the path that, that ultimately leads to success here. And w- when I mean success, I mean, just really deep, positive engagement and collaboration. Uh, mm-hmm. as I said, project is still at a relatively early stage. We're not yet in the environmental assessment process. We're not seeking consent from mine. At this point, we just want people to be involved in doing their due diligence to make sure That this project, if it does go ahead, is done so in a way that meets with their needs. And uh, we're absolutely committed to that.
0: Um, uh, You you touched on the the, the environmental assessment. Just one last little kind of very pointed question here that I will ask you just about the philosophical kind of repricing of of nickel and carbon. But does the delay of the critical mineral strategy have any risk whatsoever of delaying your entry into the, the EA process?
1: No no that, that, the, the, the two are not tied. Um, there, there's a very clear uh, EA and permitting process in place for mining projects like ours in BC. Um, we as I said, uh, we would we would hope to enter the EA process later this year or if not in early 2025 before we do so, we want to ensure that we have you know um, uh, positive relationships in place with all the impacted nations uh, to the greatest extent that we can. Um, and, and make sure that we enter that uh, process where there's no surprises and that there's a, a transparent uh, and existing basis of communication between ourselves and all those impacted groups.
0: Mm-hmm. And Thank you, Martin. And just one last question here, and, that's, and this is where I tease at the beginning, and uh, I'll try to be 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 concise with my, my lead in here, but we have this, and I speak to this as someone who I believe fully in the future of nickel and copper, and I think that, that that there's just an inevitability of our necessity, especially as Canadians, and that's why I am so much a proponent of Canadian, Canadian best practice in terms of environmental regulations and labor regulations are second to none in, in the world, and so if we want to be mining these things, we should be mining them here, right? And we, right now we are stuck on the other flip side of that coin where you have you know, Indonesian nickel flooding the market where I think that you got this from your own literature where, you know, your nickel, two tons per CO2 per one ton of nickel versus up to 69 tons of CO2 versus to one ton of nickel. Not to speak of the absolute just environmental destruction that, that occurs sometimes over there with those laterite mines, right? And, and then the, the smelting process, up and the up, upgrading process, pardon me. But uh what what has to change, right? I mean we have these sort of again like these, these dueling tensions where right now it's just a single pricing model and we're you know that more you know more high quality means sometimes it's more expensive, right? And and you're you're undercut by these very cheap uh Indonesian nickel mines in particular, what I'm referencing. What has to change? I mean, is this a government solution? Is this a market based solution? I mean, all of the above? I mean what what how do we get to a point where you know, you you actually value, or you you've monetized or put a managed to put a dollar value on an economic value on pres, preservation of environmental standards versus degradation. I mean, is he just kind of you know in, within that play field, Can you just discuss that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it, we it's this topic we could talk about for a long time. I'll try to just crystallize it down to one example that's relevant to Fpx, and that is the investment that we got from Otakumbu, um, uh last year. So Otakampu is the largest stainless steel producer in Europe, and it used to be one of, if not the largest stainless steel producers in the world, and then the Chinese stainless steel industry kind of overtook the world uh, and is now the dominant producer. Otakampu continues as a, as, a, uh, as a company to this day, of course, and the way that they market their own stainless steel products is as being the lowest carbon stainless steel in the world. Part of the way that they were able to do that is because they relied in part on Russian nickel. Now, Russian nickel, despite all its potential ESG implications, does, come, does get produced with a very low carbon footprint. So Russian nickel feeding into European stainless steel made European stainless steel much lower carbon than uh, Chinese stainless steel. And AutoCompu has been able to market its product as the lowest carbon stainless steel in the world, and has been able to yield preferential pricing versus the Chinese alternative from its customers. So if that is true for Auto producing a stainless steel product, the, the same should also be true for a mining company producing a low-carbon uh, nickel commodity versus, let's say, a high-carbon nickel product coming out of Indonesia. Um, the reason that AutoCup made an investment here is in order to get a line of sight on nickel units, in order to preserve their competitive advantage as a low-carbon producer. So these things are already in evidence in other aspects of, 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 of heavy industry. It's also in evidence in things like, you know, fair trade coffee, right, which is going to trade at a higher price than non-fair trade coffee. So there are mechanisms in place already whereby market participants through a combination of government mandates or even just market preference by consumers are willing to pay more for responsibly produced materials. Um, uh, I'm confident that that we will see that in nickel pricing in the years to come. I'm not sure that it's going to come in the form of like an LME contract necessarily for a high ESG, low carbon product that trades at X and Mm -hmm. regular non-compliant nickel trades at x minus something but in bespoke you know uh, contractual agreements for offtake companies like ours will be able to drive a price that's higher than the lme benchmark uh, i'm absolutely convinced of that it may not be as transparent to the market that, like i say there won't necessarily be uh, a low carbon lme price and a high carbon lme nickel price uh, but I absolutely believe it will impact on the ultimate revenues to be yielded from a project like ours.
0: No, thank you. And uh, you bring to mind uh, sort of the way that they price iron, right? That the, the, the sixty-five versus sixty-two and deleterious elements, all that, all that. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're kind of referencing that, and maybe not so much. But I think, like you say, we, we can. That's a whole other conversation, right? So maybe we'll we'll put it there. We'll end it there. Uh, final thoughts? Anything that you wanted just uh, to remark upon before we go?
1: Yeah, I mean, just bringing it back to the Sumitomo investment, it's obviously the most topical thing for us. Uh, it's really you know, being able to raise money at a 72% premium from one of the largest nickel companies in the world. Um, Company's share price continues to trade well below the offering price. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, uh, but it, it presents a, a, a genuine opportunity for people to look at us. Um, for anyone uh, wanting to know more about the company, they can reach out to me directly. Just send me an email at CEO at fpxnickel.com. I do get all of those emails and I do reply. So uh, don't be shy about reaching out with questions to me directly.
0: Mm-hmm. and and martin turn you're absolutely right uh, baptize project very very strong project great economics for especially for a, a project with size uh, a little cutting edge of, of environmental sustainability uh very very strong if you're looking for nickel exposure i think that this is a great company for you to be looking into uh martin thank you for your time and i and i'll talk to you again soon perhaps
1: thanks again matt